Thanks, Joel. I think you pretty much covered the waterfront there. And uh, yeah, you can pray for Jim or for me or anybody brave enough to get into the pulpit on Mother's Day. So, and brave enough also to forget their clicker. So, happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Don't let the uh, sermon title discourage you. It will make sense as we move along. When I filled this preaching slot on our sermon list a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago actually, I guess I realized it was Mother's Day. But I also checked my notes and I realized also that this is the fifth consecutive time that I've preached on Mother's Day. Not counting 2020, we didn't have a service that year due to COVID. Mother's Day is one of those Sundays when preachers are pretty much compelled to bring a message related in some ways to mothers. It's kind of like Christmas and Easter. You can't preach a message about something else on those days, can you? There's an expectation to preach about those themes, and Mother's Day seems to fall into that same category. I love preaching on Easter, love preaching a Christmas message during the Christmas season. I don't love preaching Mother's Day. Gordon originally asked to preach today. He was looking at, he, he, he had a message he wanted to bring. He saw that this date was open, but then he realized it was Mother's Day and he picked another Sunday. <laughs> Smart man, that Gordon. Preaching on Mother's Day, why don't I like to preach on Mother's Day? It feels like a minefield, you know? Whichever direction you step, you're liable to experience an explosion. Take a step this way, and boom, you're dealing with those mothers who, those women who, for whatever reason, aren't mothers. Take another step this way, boom, you're facing the woman who had terrible mothers, or the son who had a terrible mother. Take another step, and boom, you're speaking to mothers whose children or grandchildren have abandoned their faith, and Mother's Day just makes that all that more poignant. Take a step this way, and boom, you have people who've lost their mothers to death, maybe recently, and it's especially a painful holiday for them. And then there's the hard part of trying to make the message meaningful and relevant to everyone in the congregation that day. I mean, you can preach to the mothers, right? And about the biblical meaning and the biblical challenges of being a mother. Uh, hard to do when men are never going to be mothers. Of course, we all have mothers. Last thing you want to do in any message is someone thinking, well, I'm just going to check out mentally because this doesn't apply to me, right? Last year on Mother's Day, I preached on the reality that motherhood is the most important job in the world because women are the only ones who can bring life into the world. It was not the first time I preached a pro-life message on Mother's Day, but I got the most negative feedback from that message that I've ever received in 27 years of pulpit ministry. A couple of years ago, I preached on the proverbial mom. Seems like an easy one kind of sharing the wisdom of moms and how mom was right. You've got to remember that. The previous Mother's Day message that I preached was on seared consciences, and that was another pro-life message, kind of a state of the situation with our culture. I preached on the theme of honoring mom on Mother's Day several times, including the last time was on, uh, in 2018. That's, uh, that's Barb, by the way, with her baby brother and her mom. Many of you knew Gigi. So I realized that many people have mothers who are not, at least from the world's perspective, worthy of honor. 
And, of course, that was part of what that message was about. Biblical honor is positional. It's not performative. It's not about what moms do. It's not dependent at all on how well mothers or fathers fill the role. You honor your mother and father because the Bible says to do that. That means the last year I didn't preach on Mother's Day was 2017. So, here we are again, preaching on Mother's Day. If it's Mother's Day, it must be Bill in the pulpit. I'm hoping one of the other slackers, I mean elders, <laughs> will take up this task next year. Now, on the other hand, preaching on Mother's Day does have one really good thing about it. It's a theme that is absolutely ripe for humor. It really is. I once asked my mom if I was adopted, and she said, not yet. We're still waiting on someone to come and claim you. Never tell a mom you need personal space. You came out of her personal space. She might say, you're welcome for the womb and board. Note to all moms out there, especially moms of teenagers, keep a dog. That way someone's excited to see you. You know what? Good, good moms let you lick the beaters after you make brownies or icing. Great moms turn them off first. As a mom, I know that you understand on a very deep level why Mama Bear's porridge was too cold. The moms are shaking their head. The guys are going, what, what? <laughs> silence is golden. Unless you have kids, then silence is suspicious. Your kids can never make fun of you for teaching you how to use your smartphone. How many of you parents have had your kids teach you how to do something on the smartphone? Okay, there's only a few that are actually willing to admit it. They can't make fun of you for that when you're the one who taught them how to use a spoon in the toilet. Here's one I believe most mothers can really relate to. What's the fastest land mammal? A toddler who's been asked, what's in your mouth? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that kids do, sure do make a lot of plans for people who can't drive themselves anywhere? Moms just love when their kids tell them they're bored, as if the lady standing in front of a sink full of dirty dishes is where you go to get ideas about how to have a good time. Is it yelling, or is it just very enthusiastic, motivational speaking? You know you're a mother when you see a smear of brown on your shirt and you have to smell it to see if it's chocolate or poop. Right? Been there? Done that? Yep, yep. A five-year-old once told her mom that turtles are slow because they carry their houses on their backs. And I think this is a real solid analogy for parenthood. Don't you? So I began to pray about this year's message for Mother's Day and all the ones that I've done in the past. Not wanting, I mean, it's okay to repeat on theme Sundays, to repeat things that you've talked about before, at least, uh, to re at least rework them. It just so happens that at that point when I was praying about what is, what's for good for this year's Mother's Day, that I was preparing and studying 2 Corinthians for our house church meeting. Now, I can all but guarantee you that in no church in America, or maybe anywhere in the world, will you hear this passage of Scripture that I'm going to read here in a moment in a Mother's Day message. So stick with me here. I hope to make some clear connections without stepping on any landmines this morning and seeing you Go boom. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, of course, you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Mother's Day? So to understand this line of thinking, we have to look at the context of this part of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Paul was under attack. It wasn't physical attack, at least in this case. It was verbal and spiritual. This was a church that Paul had planted. He had spent time among the Corinthians. He was the very first one to bring them the gospel, and many Corinthians had believed in Christ. He had a deep love for these people in the church in Corinth. They were his spiritual children, and he considered them as such. After he left Corinth, and continued spreading the gospel in other places, Paul had heard of some issues in the Corinthian church. And he had consequently written a letter of correction of some of their practices. And that's included in our epistle of 1 Corinthians. Then other teachers following this had come to Corinth and questioned both Paul's authority as an apostle and his credibility and even his integrity. When he learned from his partner in ministry, Timothy, that there were troubles in the church, he visited them again. But when he came this time, he found opposition. And apparently, it was very public, and it was very painful. He sarcastically referred to these opponents as super-apostles later in 2 Corinthians. This was an emotionally painful thing for Paul. These Corinthians, as we noted a moment ago, they were his spiritual children. He had brought the amazing grace of the gospel to them, and now at least some of them were siding against him and with these so-called super apostles. So he wrote another letter, and this was before 2 Corinthians. It's been lost to history, but it's referenced by Paul in 2 Corinthians. In the chapter just before the verses we read, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that he had decided not to make what he called another quote-unquote painful visit to them. And instead he wrote the letter that's referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, and he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And then ironically, it was Paul's change of plans with his visits that his opponents in Corinth used, among other things, to question his integrity and his credibility. So Paul had some genuine anxiety deep concern about the church that he had planted in Corinth. And let me tell you that while the admonition to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep is true for all believers in Christ, it's especially true for spiritual leadership. We carry burdens. And Paul felt deeply the problems, the challenges, the needs of his spiritual children in Corinth. So let's pause here for a moment and think 
this is where we might begin to see at least one potential Mother's Day application of this part of Scripture. And most of what we can learn here doesn't apply just to mothers, but to fathers as well. The Corinthians were Paul's spiritual children. He loved them deeply. He cared about their physical and spiritual well-being. And now he was being castigated by some who had the ear of his children. And they were being led astray and they had become critical of the Apostle Paul. Now, they were saying things like, how can someone who claims the power of God in his life suffer so much? They knew what Paul had been through. If his preaching's worth so much, why doesn't he make any money for it? He's too proud and claims too much about himself. These were some of the kinds of accusations that Paul was hearing about himself from the church in Corinth. So he was forced, even though he hated to do this, he was forced to defend himself. But he did it in a surprising way in these verses we read. It was common practice for teachers and preachers to bring with them letters of recommendation. Paul did this too. He sent letters of recommendation, commending to other churches Timothy and Titus and Phoebe and even Philemon. Not a bad idea at all. The word tells us to know those who labor among you. That's one reason we are very careful about who gets into this pulpit to preach at TCF. They must to at least some degree be a known quantity. So recognizing this pattern of sharing credentials, Paul turned the tables on his detractors. He said essentially, I don't need those stinking letters of recommendation, at least in the way those super apostles think that I do. You know me says Paul. You know me. You know my character. You know the gospel I brought to you. My credentials are not physical letters, but they are letters written on the heart, written by the Holy Spirit. He said, you, you Corinthians are my letter of recommendation. You yourselves in your very lives have the power of the gospel to change you. You are living and breathing letters. And it's a mutual writing on hearts too. Again, in verses 2 and 3 from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we read, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And then Paul writes, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. So these living, breathing letters of recommendation are the changed, redeemed Corinthians themselves. But Paul also says, you are written on our hearts, probably meaning him and Timothy, to be known and read by all. How many moms this morning can echo something like that? How many mothers and fathers and even grandparents, grandparents would say, I love my children. I love my grandchildren so deeply that they are written on my heart. They are knit together with me in a very real but almost indefinable way that can never change. The heart in Scripture, the heart in Scripture is not always what we think of. We tend to separate mind and heart. But the heart in Scripture really is the most interior dimension of our being. It's the center of our inner life. It's the seat of all the functions of my soul. It's the place where the Holy Spirit speaks to us. 
It also includes not the opposite of our mind, but it includes our mind. And as the Greek has it, they were written permanently on Paul's heart so they could not, be, they could not slip away or be forgotten. Now some of us here are not parents, but we can still name people whom God has placed in our lives that he has written by his Holy Spirit on our hearts. This is the very deep and powerful word picture that the Apostle Paul is using here in 2 Corinthians. But it goes deeper still, and I think it continues to have some applications to motherhood or parenthood. At the end of verse 3, Paul writes that these letters aren't written on stone, but on flesh, tablets of human hearts. When our children are young, let's think about this, from maybe age one, especially into their early teen years, we have rules for them, don't we? We have law. We must, or our children cannot survive, literally. We have rules about playing in the street, about not touching hot stoves, about not grabbing other things that could hurt them. And there have to be consequences to breaking these rules because we must do our best to make sure that our kids understand how harmful that these and many other things may be. Now, as they get older, we have other rules, rules about kindness and compassion and obedience. These rules are for their good, too. They may not always affect their physical survival, like playing in traffic could, but they can have consequences both negatively and positively for how our kids get along in the world. However, Christians know, Christian parents know, and if they don't, they should, that they cannot compel their children to trust in Christ, which to any Christian parent, isn't that the most important thing we want for our kids, is for them to trust in Christ? But we also know that even though we cannot compel them to trust in Christ, that we can use our authority. We can use the law as their parents when our children are younger. And we use that to create an, a, a family environment that will contribute to their belief in Christ, making belief more rather than less likely. Up to a certain age, for example, you can require your children to attend church. It's a rule or a law in your house. You can vet and approve the kids, you're hang, the, the kids that they hang out with. You can screen their entertainment choices. And you probably have penalties for all different kinds of things, like taking the Lord's name in vain or painting their name on their sister's bedroom wall. <laughs> One of the things that Paul was forced to address, to address in his epistles and in these churches again and again was legalism. And it's very likely that this, too, was part of his opposition in Corinth. This is still popular among many believers in Christ today. Human nature seems to like formulas and religious goals. And, of course, they're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. Just like the Old Testament law was never a bad thing. It was just an inadequate means of changing human behavior and erasing sin. Yet it's harder for us to simply trust Christ and the Holy Spirit to work. You can much more easily measure progress in your kid's outward behavior. Yeah, he's not painting on his sister's bedroom wall anymore, and he's not playing in traffic. You can easily measure that in a way that is more difficult to truly know what's going on in their hearts. 
Not like you don't have hints, but it's harder to know for sure. We all want compliance to our rules and standards, don't we? As parents, we want our kids to comply. But more than that, we want this to be heartfelt, genuine compliance. Not just compliance because of the fear of punishment or discipline. We want our kids to want to obey. We want them to obey, but we want them to want to. So here in 2 Corinthians, and actually in very many other places in the New Testament, Paul showed how much greater the ministry of the gospel of grace was compared to the Old Testament. Think about Tom's testimony this morning. I think Tom's going to think twice about speeding. Why? Because God let him off the hook. God didn't have to. That was the temporal consequence of what Tom did. He freely admitted, right? I did it. I, I was speeding. And I deserved the fine. But I didn't get it. That's the good thing about grace, brothers and sisters, isn't it? We don't get what we deserve. In Christ, we don't get what we deserve. So think about this. Our rules as parents are external. Tom had no idea what I was going to preach this morning and came and told me about that testimony. And I said, yes, it's really appropriate today as we make this connection. Our rules as parents are external. And as we've noted, they're necessary. The old covenant law was external. It was also quite necessary. But because the law, our rules as parents for our kids is external, it doesn't give anyone, including our kids, the power or the ability to obey. It doesn't transform us like the power we see at work in the new covenant, the power of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, not just change our behavior. To be clear, the new covenant does both. It changes our hearts. As our hearts are changed, our behavior changes. But our obedience to the law when the Holy Spirit changes our hearts makes our obedience heartfelt, not just external. It's inner obedience, not just outer. We obey, and we're glad to. And we don't grit our teeth internally, resisting obedience, but complying outwardly. Moms, parents can tell their kids to do this or don't do that. But none of us can, as parents can give our children the power to obey. And if they do obey anyway, we initially don't always know if that's due to a personality of compliance. Let's face it, some kids are just more compliant than others, even from their very early age. But it may not be from the heart. And if this is true, they're likely to be worse off than before. What happens when parents no longer have the authority to make them obey? So the Corinthians' experience of God's grace, his power to change their hearts, his power to change their lives, meant much more than letters of commendation carried by the false teachers who opposed Paul. In our analogy here, our kids can be learning and growing in genuine, heartfelt obedience to our rules because they've embraced the gospel of grace and they have trusted in Christ. That makes it more likely when they are adults, no longer under Bible rules or under parental rules to obey, they'll truly honor their mothers and fathers anyway because they are ruled in their hearts by grace and they genuinely want to obey Scripture and obey the Lord. There never was a standard that could transform a person's life 
and that includes the Ten Commandments. Only the grace of God, ministered by the Spirit of God, can transform lost sinners into living epistles that glorify Jesus Christ. Paul reminded the Corinthians, and we have to remind ourselves as moms and dads, and as believers in Christ, whether or not you're a parent, that the old covenant law, or our rules in life, cannot give life. Only the gospel, only the good news, only the gospel can give spiritual and eternal life to those who believe. The old covenant law, with its emphasis on external obedience, was preparation for the new covenant message of grace. Its emphasis on internal transformation of the heart. In a similar manner, this is where we make the connection between law and gospel and rules and our kids growing up. Our parental rules and standards emphasize external obedience for the training and good of our children. But we must be clear and certain and consistent to add the message of grace. We have to add the message of grace. Now Paul's description of writing on tablets of human hearts, and some scholars think that actually this is a commentary on Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We read in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Wow. In Ezekiel, we read this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's a precursor of the gospel that Paul preached. You can't do it, so I will cause you. I will give you the ability. I will give you the Holy Spirit power to obey. What good news the gospel is. God offers a new heart. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. He offers a new relationship and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He offers a new knowledge and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And he offers true forgiveness, not just the covering over of sin, he said, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Wow. So written letters like outward compliance from our children can be misleading. But living letters over time will reveal the truth. Now here's where the sermon title will hopefully begin to make sense and not bother you, insufficient moms. Paul recognizes that his role, okay, he says, my role in gospel transformation that turned the Corinthians into li living letters, it was secondary. It was secondary. 
So too, our roles as parents are secondary. We are just stewards of God's work in our children. Paul was like the ink and the pen, but Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, was the author, the one who was writing his grace and his mercy and his transformational power on the human hearts of the Corinthians. Paul was just an instrument. He was just a tool. We often, in praying for the preacher of the day before a Sunday service, uh, the elders get together and pray for the service, and we pray that this man would be used by God like a tool in his tool chest. Inscribing, actually writing on the human heart, is far beyond my ability, any of our abilities. That's why a spiritual heart transplant was needed, like Ezekiel described. So, yes, Paul played a part in this, but again, he was not the author of this writing. His confidence was through Christ and not through any power of his own. Paul was supremely God-confident. But confidence can sometimes be seen by others as arrogance or even superiority or pride. That's why Paul was very quick here to disclaim any self-sufficiency. In verse 5 and 6 of our main text, Paul writes, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In the previous chapter, Paul, when describing the amazing aroma, the previous chapter of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he describes the amazing aroma, he uses that analogy, of the gospel of Christ. And he asks rhetorically, who is sufficient for these things? Of course, the answer is no one. No one. No one is sufficient in and of themselves. Our sufficiency is now and always will be from God and God alone. As parents, we teach and preach law as our kids grow. And that's right. It's the way you need to do it. And through it all, we hopefully teach them grace too, knowing that the rules will never be enough because I got news for you if you haven't figured this out as a parent by now. Our kids are sinners just like us. Amen. Our kids are just as incapable of obeying God without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as I am, as all of us in this room are. People God uses have always been very well aware of their own insufficiency and their own weakness. We see it throughout Scripture. We see Moses... We see Gideon, we see Isaiah, we see Jeremiah, we see Ezekiel, we see Paul and Peter, or John. And around this room we can see moms and dads. It's our insufficiency that invites the sufficiency of God. God's not looking for gifted people or people who are self-sufficient. He wants inadequate people who will give their weakness to Him and allow Him to work by His Holy Spirit in the lives of the people around us. And for moms, that's your kids. Oswald Chambers wrote, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him has made possible the unique display of his power and grace. 
Hudson Taylor wrote, God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his work by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then uses him. So it is with moms and dads, for that matter, or anybody who just cares about anybody else in their eternal state. Christian parents are the first ministers of the gospel that children experience. Have you ever considered that? Bringing the gospel of grace to their kids. But you know what? This is the good news, bad news at the same time. You are insufficient. You are insufficient. It's true of any of us who want to minister the gospel in any context, not just in parenthood. You can't change anybody. Our rules aren't bad. In Christ, they are God-given. But they cannot change the hearts of our kids without the work of the Holy Spirit. The reality remains we aren't sufficient in ourselves to claim anything, as Paul wrote, as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, and that's good news. So as moms and dads, as parents, or grandparents, or again, just people involved in some other way with people that we love, let's embrace, even this morning, let's embrace our insufficiency and declare that we will rely on his sufficiency and not the weakness that's in all of us. Let's pray that God would move in the lives of our families and friends and use us as insufficient in ourselves but powerful in him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of scripture, even recognizing that we truly are insufficient in and of ourselves. But in Christ, Father, you make us sufficient. And Father, the power of your gospel is what matters, not the power of our parenting, not the power of our witness, Lord. So we're grateful for these things. We thank you, Father God, for your word. We thank you for our moms. We thank you for our parents, Lord. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would continue to use us as tools in your tool chest, Father, as instruments of your grace in the lives of our children, in the lives of the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.